welcome back to the Accelerators Podcast. We are radiation oncologists, Drs. Matt Spraker, Simil Parikh, and Anna Lauschus, and we're bringing you oncology news and views with guests from all over the field. Note, the discussions on this show are not medical advice, and they represent our own opinions and not those of our employers. And now, on with the show. All right, welcome to the Accelerators Podcast. Uh, Matt Spraker here, radiation oncologist in Denver, Colorado, and uh, one of the Accelerators co-hosts. And I have three fantastic guests with me today. I'll let you guys go ahead and introduce yourselves. My name is Chris Jethwa. I'm a GI radiation oncologist at Mayo Clinic. My name is Neil Newman, and I'm a GI radiation oncologist at UT Health San Antonio and a friend of the show. Hey, I'm Jeff Reichman. I'm based at a network site at WVU. Uh, I treat everything. Uh, I also teach GI for Osler, uh, but I learn a lot from uh, these two other gentlemen on this podcast as well. And yeah, and actually, Neil, you pointed out. So, Chris, Neil, you've been on before. So, thank you for joining us. And Jeff, this has been a long time coming. I know we have another one coming up with you, which is going to be awesome. And so, I'm happy that you're able to join us here because uh, I think we've been, it's been a while that we've been talking about figuring out a way to kind of get you on. And I think this is going to be a great topic. Thanks for having me. So, today's. Wow. Um, today's uh, topic, we're actually going to talk about basically radiation therapy for liver tumors, how that fits in uh, with treatment for HCC or metastases, and how that fits in along with um, IR, interventional radiology-based treatments, and so we'll kind of dive into all of that. And we're actually fairly unstructured. We, I was just telling you guys before we joined that, you know, we had another episode that was very well received with Nina uh, Sanford that we did just a totally unstructured like discussion of rectal cancer and people really liked that. And so you guys are awesome on this topic. And so I'm really looking forward to hearing about it. Um, I think we, Chris, you were going to kind of kick us off here by initiating the discussion. Is that right? Yeah, I'm, I'm happy, happy to help moderate this because I'd love to learn from both Jeff and Neil and their, and their thoughts on this topic. I think they're both, you know, experts on it, have lots of knowledge to share, and I'm happy to pick their brains. The first item I would like to hear from you all, um, you know, just to help guide the community on how, how to take care of patients with liver tumors is how do you approach your thought process to a patient who comes in, you're seeing in the, them in the clinic for the first time, or you're viewing their care at tumor board, your thought process regarding how do you think about if radiation therapy could be indicated in the treatment of a patient with hepatocellular carcinoma, what might be indications to treat them, and what are your kind of lines in the sand of, nope, I don't think this patient would be safe to treat with radiation therapy, just from a, a very global overview. Sure. Uh, Neil, I hope you don't mind if I jump on this one. Um, Go for it. One of my favorite physical exams really is the liver exam. There's this fantastic uh, paper called The Liver Has a Body, A Cook's Tour. And I can't remember who wrote the paper. Hopefully we can put it in the show notes. But it's one of my favorite um, articles ever. And it just, you know, it, it, it talks about you know, starting on the chest to look for, uh, you know, estrogen, like overload, um, and then going down into the hands to look for Terry's nails. Um, and I, I call it my visual child pew score. Uh, in residency, I could always predict that the albumin was less than, I think, 2.7 or something like that. If I'm whatever the, I can't remember what it is, but whatever the lower cutoff to have people be assigned two points for a low albumin. Um, you could tell if they had Terry's nails. And that's when the cuticle, the nail goes 
you know, almost to the end of the nail where most of it's white. It's almost like leukonychia, but leukonychia isn't the right word. That just means white fingernail that's seen in some leukemias. Um, so, I mean, really, it's kind of fascinating. Just by looking at someone's fingernails, I can tell if they're a candidate for SBRT. Because if they have Terry's nails, um, then that's pretty much two points because their albumin is going to be two points for that. They're automatically child QB7. And those are the ones where, you know, child QA56, like, sure. But there's a marked difference in liver toxicity for child PUA6 versus child PUA5. So it's really fascinating what, even without looking at labs, what you can tell from a physical exam. So that's one of the first things that I'll do is, sure, I'll look at the labs before I see them, but it's always kind of fun to correlate, uh, you know, physical exam uh, symptoms as well. Um, so let's kind of jump in here. So so if that patient's presented a tumor board, is is your first question to the presenter, what do their nails look like? <laughs> Yeah, you know, we'll look at the last question, but, but also, you know, another thing that's great from Nick Zorsky uh, is, uh, you know, knowing the lobes of the liver with your right hands, uh, you know, number one would be the caudate. Uh, and once you draw the numbers on your knuckles enough, you know, you can find out what, what uh, is the lower segments. So always, I believe it's four B five, six, and seven. Those are the lower ones. So if I hear it's in this, in those segments, I'm always like, okay, is that less than a centimeter to bowel or not? We always like to have a half a cm to one cm to bowel. Uh, and so that's what I would say in distance to organs at risk. Uh, and then that visual child pew score. Uh, and then the floor is yours and you. Well, uh, well, Jeff, I'm going to jump in actually because you, you did get me really excited. Um, so I, I think I told you all recently I'm teaching a bunch of M1 soon and I'm really excited and I love having med students. And when I tell my residents, um, also, and med students, why I love GI Radonc is because I say that physical exam matters a lot, right? So obviously rectal anal, but the liver exam, absolutely. You know, you do, you can tell, um, well, I, I feel like that usually I know my patients from tumor board, but um, in addition to that, if they do come, you, you can tell um, based off of, you know, um, whether whether they do have ascites, right? Um, I still love to percuss the liver, um, you know, tell the patients I could hear the liver singing, um, show patients, uh, um, show my uh, students uh, whether they have like a fluid rate. Um, obviously, you can um, even get a rough sense of degrees of um, jaundice and what their bilirubin uh, may or may not be, you know, look for uh, conjunctival um, jaundice, et cetera. Um, so I think that that all matters a lot. Um, the anatomy is great. Um, I love that you brought up the fish trick because um, I, I have always had trouble getting that into my head. So um, I like to just stick with the portal vein branches and hepatic veins and then just go clockwise. That's the only way that I could do it. But, um, you know, that, it's, would, uh, good to think just, about it. Just to validate for for like the other rhinox that might be listening, I, I'm not a specialist anymore, but I've treated a fair number of liver tumors in a lot of different settings. And I still Google that like almost every time when I'm writing notes for patients because you know, I probably have the least amount of like memorized knowledge for that anatomy, but I just, I can never remember it. So I, the Nick Zorsky reference is fantastic. I'd forgotten about that. So I'm going to start practicing writing on my, on my hand and kind of trying to learn them off the top of my head. Yeah. What, but, but that, that being said, I misquoted the, the lesion, the, the lobes. I said four, five, six, sevens at the bottom. It's actually three, four B five and six. So I think that this is just highlighting the fact that segments are hard to memorize, but uh, I would still check out that right-handed trick though. At least you can remember Cotty's segment one from that trick pretty easily. 
Sorry, go ahead, Matt. Didn't mean to cut you off. Well, one of the, I don't want to dwell on this too much because we have a lot to cover, but I, I wanted to just point out that sometimes I forget, I actually just recently was questioning whether physical exam really has a big role in oncology anymore. Um, because a lot of oncologists, even outside radiation, we, these patients that are imaged like crazy, our imaging is getting incredibly good, right? I mean, imaging is, is excellent. We have full sets of labs. The fact is, is that these tricks that you've shared are are great, but you you can actually select the patients just based on the objective data that you collect from the chart. But then I forget that like, if you do this a while, you know, you've kind of forget what it's like to be a med student. You do a lot of physical exam very quickly when you get in the room or do it very efficiently and you pick these things up almost subconsciously and you forget. Um, I never pointed out to my own residents when I was training them, um, but I do a lot of the things, Jeff, that you mentioned, like when you walk in the room and you see the person and you're assessing them for liver function, right? It's it's, it's, so I sort of just, it made me think of it because it's been a topic in my mind lately. So the, the eyeball test, right? And obviously I can't be objective about this, but I think that for a lot of patients, especially with evaluative, the eyeball test matters a lot, right? And I think that um, actually recently I had a lady with a three centimeter limited stage small cell, right? And, you know, my uh, resident was all pumped up because he saw that there is some data for SBRT and chemo, right? For a small, like the peripheral um, small cell. The resident was absolutely correct, but the patient was hospitalized for uh, many other comorbidities, right? And when I saw this patient, she was malnourished. Um, she couldn't stay awake. Her eyes were starting to roll a little bit. And I, I looked at her and I said, I, I don't know if I'm doing anything right by even wasting her time for five ration SBRT. I don't, and, and her brain was clear, by the way, she really was limited. Um, the patient passed away within two weeks, right? So I take examples like that to not just jump after the the, the tumor or whatever, um, you know, and to uh, to look at the holistic. So I know I can't be more objective than that, but I have had some liver patients that um, I've recommended nothing or just like maybe an eight times one, um, depending on their stage. I think those are all really awesome thoughts. And and, if, and I'll like to summarize, if you all don't mind, it, it sounds like what I'm hearing is that when you're reviewing this patient, whether it's in clinic or tumor board for their candidacy for radiation therapy, you're, you're taking things into consideration, like their performance status and how that may interplay with their potential tolerance of therapy. You're using a functional standpoint um, regarding liver function based upon the eyeball tests for stigmata of potential cirrhosis. But also I heard Charles Pugh mention in albumin. So you're also taking objective laboratory measures into account. And then I, I also heard anatomy as it relates to proximity to other organs at risk like bowel and total liver volume. Are there any other items you all think about as you're considering whether or not a patient may be a candidate for treatment? Yeah. So honestly, the most important thing I think is how much radiation does this tumor need? Is it metastatic or is it uh, HCC? You know, if it's a primary liver lesion, um, they tend to be very radiosensitive. There's a lot of conflicting data. Some people say there's no cutoff for for hepatocellular carcinoma. So the BED10 of greater than or equal to 100, which is, you know, about a 50 grain five script, there's no difference in local control for above or less than BED10 of 100. So it makes doesn't make a difference if it's above 50 and five or below 50 and five. Local control seems to be around 90%, okay? But there's a meta-analysis recently that showed, you know, BD10s down in the 40s, okay? Like, not to get too technical, but that's roughly about 27.5 and 5. That's a BD10 of 43. The old Bujold study, um, you know, that that p-value was not statistically significant for better control for 30 and 6. 
above that or below 30 grain six, but it's right around 27.5 and five or 30 grain six. That seems like a very low dose, but it's associated with local control in the 80s or so for HCC. So proximity to OARs isn't as important for HCC as it is for say metastatic colorectal carcinoma. So we know we need to take the BD tens of that above 100 or maybe even 150. Those are your 50 and five scripts or 54 and three, which is kind of night and day com compared to what is an effective dose for HCC. So I think it really depends on whether or not it's a MET or a primary liver tumor as, as for the proximity to OARs, because I'll feel pretty comfortable to still do an HCC, even if it's pretty close to my OARs. I let that 25 gray isodose line be flush with bowel, but does your planned dose actually re reflect the dose that's delivered? If you don't have real-time tracking, that's the real question, but I allow 25 to be flush with bowel. And I love the and I allow the 30 gray isodose line for five fraction regimens to be about a five millimeter PRV away from bowel. That's just the way I do it. 25 flush, 30 flush with PRVO5. Um, but yeah, it definitely matters as to whether or not it's a primary liver tumor, more radiosensitive versus colorectal metastases. Yeah, I, I'd agree with all of that. Neil, I'm curious. Jeff just described how he approaches bowel, but I, I'm, I'm curious how you approach sparing of liver for patients with primary liver tumors and, and especially how you think about how it interplays with baseline liver function. Yeah. Um, so, you know, obviously when we have to go over these cases, right, we have to think about all of our main OERs, luminal GI structures, um, and really liver, <laughs> the first two big ones. So, you know, classically, and I think the reason why um, we have kind of fallen behind maybe in the, at least the HCC space is that patients have two competing issues, right? You have the cancer, but of course you have, uh, in most cases, a cirrhotic uh, liver, right? Um, so uh, for my practice right now, I am um, usually personally reluctant to... Um, uh, to go like above a B7, never really over a B8. And if it's a B8, it has to be um, someone who doesn't really have like a CITES. So I'll, I will still be um, somewhat selective with what I look at with the child's P-score. Um, but then from there, um, I am, uh, you know, the astro liver guidelines will uh, will give you kind of like mean constraints, which I certainly try to follow. Um, but um, I tend to be very, very strict with my spare 700 cc volume, which is different than D 700 cc's. Um, I know that that's also a separate confusing topic that can go back and forth in the literature, but um, I'm very, very strict on my spare 700. So over five fractions um, for um, liver, depending on the pathology, but with HCC, I do like it less than 20. I aim for 15. Um, and I'm happy if I can spare 700 of 10 gray over five. Can I just clarify, because I know this is in the literature, when you're talking about liver sparing, you're, you're actually talking about volumetric sparing on an anatomical scan. Do you use any functional images to, to estimate functional liver volume? Sorry if I'm stepping on people's <laughs> No, no, that's actually, that's actually a great question. And um, uh, Dr. Eugene Coe had an amazing oral presentation at ASCO this year um, using spec scanning uh, for recurrent uh, radiation. Um, I would actually probably need to learn, I do need to learn uh, uh, more about the extent of the literature on that specific topic. Um, I haven't integrated it into my practice. I'd love to hear if these gentlemen have, um, except for when someone has had multiple rounds of Y90 
And maybe it's just this extra crazy case. And I then I have gotten um, sex scans um, just to um, and, and I go over it with the radiologist in great detail just to um, see where the functional areas are. Um, and then I do try to make a rough um, volumetric estimate as to where the areas are. And that's a very much a case by case with how um, comfortable I am to proceed from there. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a great question, Matt. I, I also don't typically use functional imaging to help guide my liver dose parameters uh, in my clinic either. I, I've generally followed the mean liver dose and a, a certain volume spared from a threshold dose as my main two criteria, exactly like Neil does. My, my, my guess, I, I've actually seen, the reason I asked is I've seen this in the literature as far back as when I was a resident. So I, I know this isn't like a new idea. My, my guess, though, is kind of what you said, Neil, that like it probably isn't going to change a lot about your treatment plan unless it's a heavily pretreated patient with very little residual liver function. Right. So that, that's probably um, anyway, I was just curious if anyone's made that. Yeah, that's you, you pretty much hit it on the nose. That's when I try to go for it. And then uh, recently, Dr. Nina Sanford had an amazing thread kind of bringing up the history of this one third liver, you know, and how we you know, we on the lower with how we all took it from surgery. So that's a good thread to check out separately. Yeah. And just to briefly touch on that, you know, you know, Timmerman himself even had said about these minimum volume spared or cold volume, complementary volume, critical volume. It's called so many different things. It's reported as different things in the literature, but there's a great paper and it's, uh, uh, that we'll put in the show notes um, that, that says uh, the critical volume constraints are a source of confusion for many on energy protocols. <laughs> I think that that sums it up well. Um, and so we're talking about two different things here. Um, uh, critical volume or CV, uh, that is keeping 700 cc's to spare from radiation. Um, but then when we say D800 cc's, that is dose to 800 cc's. So it's volume exposed minus volume spared for D700 versus CV700, for example. And then that landmark uh, Lord Dawson paper where they break down the child Pew scores, they found that critical volume was not statistically significant, and yet we use it on every patient. They found D800 was clinically significant. So the volume exposed, 800 cc's exposed to dose was significant, but not the volume spared. And so th this, this is a very confusing technical topic, but in a nutshell, the critical volume, cold volume constraints are met in all patients with normal sized livers, okay? Um, on their report, they only had six patients and there was hundreds of patients that had a liver smaller than 900 cc's. And so those 700 cc constraints, the cold volume only really apply to patients that have livers smaller than a thousand cc's, which is pretty rare, perhaps pediatrics or heavily pretreated tumors. And so that's why we use mean liver dose to de-escalate our doses for hepatocellular carcinoma. And this is something I tested for Osler for everybody this year to make sure they understood the schema of RTOG1112. Mean liver dose is what drives our dose. We're not doing dose de-escalation based on mean liver dose for colorectal patients. Normally, they don't have cirrhosis, and we also need to go to higher doses. We know we can't drop our BED10s like we can in HCC. So I think it's really important for all residents to really understand the scheme of RTOG1112. There's additional NRG study. I think it's GU003, if I recall correctly. And that's that's doing dose de-escalation for 5 and 15 fractions. Um, and so they're really interesting schemas. I think it's some of the most complicated things we do. Um, but it's vital to know, especially in tumor boards, if you see a tumor with macrovascular invasion. So um, 
You just brought me back to that feeling when I was like a brand new PGY2 trying to follow what my attending is saying. And I'm going to have to go and like read all this to kind of understand. (laughs) Yeah. And that's that's the problem though, too, because I want this podcast to be accessible to everybody. And I feel like we're heavily in the weeds of strictly radiation oncology right now. Yeah. yeah, no, it's good. I think I think it's actually a really important point, and I think that what's nice about podcasts is that people can listen to it back. You actually explained it very well. I think it's just what's what is challenging is that um, there's a lot of uh, uh, different metrics, right? And they've changed over time. And so, like you know, the what what you had just said was something no one had ever said to me when I was a resident. We were looking mainly at spared liver volume. That's kind of the classic, right, old school metric that we were using and. And so I think it's important uh, if people didn't track that exactly, the big takeaway is that you should probably go and read some of the latest protocols to update your knowledge on how people are kind of planning these, these, these. <clears throat> Definitely. And, um, you know, without going like too deep or anything, like Jeff, Jeff hit on it perfectly, right? Is that each of those pathways has a history, right? So like the mean liver dose goes back to the classic Laura Dawson papers in 2000 with conventional radiation. Um, and then that's how we kind of got to the uh, current like uh, evolution of de-escalating based on, on the mean. So that was a great point. But um, since uh, since uh, Jeff um, wanted to, you know, to make this more accessible for all populations, I think that maybe we should start pivoting towards some competing modalities in HCC. Let's talk about one thing first, Neil, because I want everyone to know that when they see that patient that they're planning to treat, what are the steps they take from consult to actually beam on? Do, do you mind walking us through what you do for, you know, if you use some form of IGRT surrogate, what you go through for SIM to, you know, plan for motion management or motion mitigation? Yeah, absolutely. So that's a really good question. So we're, um, so I guess this could apply towards pretty much any liver tumor, right? Yeah. Um, okay. So, um, you know, so once they, um, once they, uh, are kind of appropriate for radiation. So I kind of have my own little counseling sheet and everything that I give to them and just kind of walk through them, just what I want for everyone's liver. I always request that they just fast for six hours before. Obviously some are far from the duodenum, but I would just rather feel that it's always reproducible. And when it's nearby, then I will just emphasize that more. Um, and then, um, again, depending on size and depending on location, um, I may get a fiducial um, placed in it. And um, part of that can kind of depend on pre-imaging appearance. Um, but oftentimes, I will do it for for very small size or if it's not near any type of like clear anatomical, easily identifiable area. So maybe if it's central and it's near the bifurcation of the portal vein um, and it's big, right? Like I might, I might not. Um, so then when I um, do scan these patients, um, I don't have uh, extra fancy equipment right now, um, but uh, you know, I will uh, scan them um, backlog. I just try to get compression on them and then I'll take the 4D scan. For contrast, I do do a two phase um, if I think that it will like help me for HCC. Then from there, um, or, or and then um, again, depending on that case, um, I may get breath hold at the same time if I think that the patient can tolerate it. Um, then I actually will look at the motion of the 4D, right? Because that matters a lot too. Same thing that they used to do in lung if you thought that it was going up and more than uh, one centimeter up and down, because you really do want to minimize toxicity. If it's going up and down and you're using coplanar beams and you're, you'll splash all over that liver. Um, so then, you know, then I'll then I'll choose from there to stick with my 4D or maybe do a breath hold approach. Um, 
or, you know, depending on the circumstances, if I think the patient would benefit from better technology, then I'm happy to place a referral to people nearby in Texas. Um, and then um, after I apply my constraints and probably Dosi wants to kill me from a few runs on planning, um, I also always make sure to give very clear set of instructions in my notes. I'm usually at the machine for my SBRTs. Um, and then I send my ISODOS lines as structures to turn on, and then you can turn everything on. And if there's any concern, you can always abort. So it takes a lot of thought. You have to be very careful every step of the way. And my advice to myself that I always remember is, um, you know, don't treat if at that last minute you're not feeling good. You can always go back and reevaluate and be cautious. Can I just yeah. really quick jump in and emphasize that point that you said? I think it's a fantastic technique. I use it all over the body um, because I think if you're a new radiation oncologist, you don't realize that your intent, your treatment intent is extremely hard to communicate to your team. And so if you're not at the machine and you expect your therapist to set up the patient in a certain way, they may have no idea what you're thinking. So a really, really strong strategy is to have your dosimetrist change your isodose line you're concerned about. I'm guessing in this case, like 36 gray is probably a, poss- a, a, a probable one for five fraction as a volume. Depend, depends on the case. And then the therapist actually get a setup list as to what I want. So they could go through it. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so you, you have them convert that isodose line from the plan into a structure and then they send it to the machine. And so the therapist can literally turn on where the 36 gray dose line boundary is. And then I just tell my therapist, like, just make sure there's not duodenum in that structure. And I use that and it helps communicate to the other physicians as well. Excellent strategy. I really love that. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that's a really nice strategy that you proposed there, Neil. The I, I practice very, very similarly. Um, I, I often put fiducial markers in, in for patients and 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 most commonly will treat with most commonly with breath hold, whether it's deep inspiration or full expiration breath hold. And I do that in part because when we treat patients, we use the the advanced imaging package on a true beam with triggered imaging. So we have a patient get into their respiratory gate, get a triggered imaging image, which is essentially a KV film and make sure that a fiducial stays within a fiducial plus margin volume before we actually continue on with BMON. So it's kind of nice, at least for us to have fiducials for purely the triggered imaging component. But there are a lot of times like just what you've described where for various reasons, we we use a liver edge or another anatomical surrogate and, and scrap the fiducials. Yeah. And just to talk about on the machine, just visualization purposes, we have institutional protocol for fiducial contouring where we have two contours per fiducial. It's fiducial proper. And then if on bone window, you add two millimeters for a second contour or abdomen abdomen window would be one millimeter addition. So then that way you just have two fiducial markers. So if you're trying to get three inside the, 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 the ranges, you have a little bit extra margin. So it makes it easier on the machine to adjust. And then one other thing I do for OARs, let's say that it's approaching a, a bowel. Um, I put on two PRVs on my bowel. I don't have real-time tracking, okay? I, I, I do not have uh, MR uh, tracking. I wish I did. That'd be really neat. Um, but since I just have cone beams, uh, what I do is I'll do a 5-millimeter PRV on bowel and a 10-millimeter PRV on bowel as well. And I'll have both of those populated on the machine during treatment. And I'll make sure that any gas bubbles are within the bowel proper, um, if at all possible. And then I start sweating if there's a gas bubble in the PRV05 or, or, or PRV10, that's five millimeters and 10 millimeters respectively. So I always like to see gas bubbles with inside uh, the, the bowel proper contours. That's just my poor person's version of um, just feeling safe about treating. But fortunately, again, with HCC, we have the luxury of decreasing our doses and still having at least 80% local control 
So I have a really low threshold to drop my dose in HCC. Sure, I'd love to see that that reported on one 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 two. How did the twenty seven point five and five yeah. and thirty and five regimens do? Was it really eighty percent local control? Um, but yeah, just just some tips on the machine. Uh, there's so much nuance in everything we do. There's not enough so, uh, minutes I, in the day. That's, to that's discuss. Such, a, such a good point. I recently with Chris, I was also saying I was like, I can't wait to see how those sub levels broke out because I don't know about y'all, but in the prelim presentations, I haven't seen it yet and. Just one more thing to Jeff's point that uh, that you know is great, you know, PRVs, right? So maybe I take it from Jeff from one of his many awesome threads that I also do a five millimeter and uh, one centimeter. Um, and if I do a 4D scan, uh, one more helpful thing I also do is I actually contour the eye fiducial just in case that helps with setup. You, you can't contour, contour you can't contour over contour. <laughs> yeah, contour what? fiducials in 4D, yep. but you yep. should probably be like Chris and do gating. I yeah. At this it time, depends. I'm unable yeah. to do gating in my current situation. I can only do DIBH yeah. for breasts, and that's it. That's just the reality of network site practice sometimes. Well, I mean, yeah, I think that's... the reality is is that you know while we we think everything is all awesome in our ivory tower and academics, the the majority of patients in our country who have, who have cancer are treated by great doctors out in the community. And so that, that's one of the beauties of what you and, and Neil just shared is that you we've describe ways that we think can effectively treat a patient with a liver tumor with varying technology kind of packages available and whether it be some form of gating with with breath hold and you know fancy triggered imaging or there's methods to achieve a very good outcome even without some of those fancy tech tools Mm -hmm. and yeah just as a segue too in my three years of practice, I've treated all of zero HCCs because it's dominated by systemic therapy and catheter-based approaches. Where I had trained, they did the SBRT versus TASTE trial, which is a phase two trial. I could treat HCCs with my eyes closed where I trained. We, we, had, we had a re- ridiculously robust uh, volume. And that phase three uh, trial of TASTE versus SBRT is ongoing now. And I think it's going to be a slam dunk victory for SBRT. So it's really funny coming from somewhere that had a robust HCC program and then coming out in the community, I'm going to have to talk to my registrar and get my volumes up again. I did this for lymphomas. Last week, I saw three lymphomas. I went from zero to probably like 10 to 20 lymphomas a year just by being vocal at tumor boards. And now I'm poised to do the same thing now that we have results or at least abstract of RTOG1112. I'm sure I'm going to have a robust service for HCC. But in, at network sites, you have to advocate for our modality. I mean, that's just the reality. So I, I guarantee you, if we check in next year, I'll say that I have a pretty robust HCC volume. So I'm really looking forward to sharing this with my colleagues. I'm curious to see how it goes for you, because in lymphoma, you're kind of arguing against doing nothing, right? Whereas in HCC, you're arguing against doing something other than what somebody wants to do. And so I think um, that part is, is going to be challenging. I'm actually in this in basically the same exact situation as you. Uh, I have a very uh, collegial tumor board, and so I think I'm going to steal some quotes from this from this podcast and start to you know lobby a little harder. I've had to kind of pick and choose and work on pancreas a little more than than uh, you know than HCC so far, but that's definitely a goal. I'm really excited to hear your follow up there because I think you do a great job of that. So I think it'll be it'll be nice to see. And it, this is a- consistency. You know the the data will. The truth will reveal itself in time. You know, we know the current paradigm needs updating. Um, apparently, one of the big wigs for the BCLC is a heavy taste guy. Uh, and lo and behold, taste is still in the driver's seat, although we can't accrue all these trials. And 
and uh, SBRT, I, I believe, I'm firmly convicted. I'm, uh, I'm just sighing. I'm just sighing back here as you speak this. Yeah, but yeah. I'm firmly convicted <laughs> yeah. that we should be frontline. I mean, I mean, really, but, but, like, like where where do I start? Do I start with systemic therapy? Do I start with the when the trial? Like, when when yeah, exactly. We structured because I could I could rant about this all day about the HCC paradigm and how yep. we deserve. And, and just just as a quick side note. I went to a conference as a resident in the Midwest. It was like the Midwest, like GI oncology society. And the person presenting, I believe was a surgeon. And there's four pillars of care. Okay. For liver care. All right. Surgical oncology, medical oncology, and interventional radiology. They had these big, nice Corinthian columns, all of the same size. Okay. And then there was a fourth pillar. It was really tiny. You had to squint to see it. And it was radiation. And the presenter photoshopped the radiation pillar to be as small as possible. And that's our role, y'all. We're in the back seat. We're in the bucket seats. We're in those old station wagon Volvos with the seats facing backwards, okay? Well, and Paradox is driving, and we're facing backwards. That's how well, far back we are. Jeff, I'm just glad you gave us bucket seats. <laughs> Looking yeah, at nail. At least we have the- <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm the pathologic optimist over here. So... This is a really great segue. Neil put out a really fiery, awesome thread on taste versus SBRT and and some comments on Y90 versus SBRT. And I'm curious in real life just to to hear Neil let it fly, hear his thoughts on these topics. All right, friends, this concludes part one of our episode on radiation for liver tumors with Krish, Neil, and Jeff. Will Neil let it fly? Tune in next week for the conclusion of this exciting episode.